0: To the MWC Church podcast. MWC Church is a place where you can belong, believe, and become the person God's created you to be. Thanks for joining us online. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we are currently in a series called Words on the Cross. As you turn there, let me me just give you this, this, this factoid I believe that when it comes to who we are in the kitchen, we are one of three types of people. Um, You are either someone who follows the recipe, someone who doesn't follow recipes, or someone who just doesn't cook. All right? Do we have anybody who's like, nope, I, I just, I'm not a cook. Like, Chinese take out all, the- and <laughs> some of you are raising your hand. Do we have any of you who are, like, like my wife, Katie, she is a recipe follower. I mean, this girl, like, she pulls out, like, the periodic table, and she's, like, like measuring everything and making sure, like, that at the molecular level, everything is, is, is to the, the, the recipe. Um, she will, if we're, if we're out, like, somewhere on vacation, and we got a kitchen, and she's making something, she will go buy a tablespoon, right? Like, like she, she's going to measure things, like, she, she's really meticulous. Anybody super meticulous when it comes to, to cooking? Cool, very cool, very cool. We know who to get on our admin team. Um, anybody like me, where you're just like, remember that old or early 2000s uh, Chef Emeril? Just bam! Just like, like uh, that's me. Like I'll go through my, I'll through my, go through my spice cabinet, and I, I enjoy cooking. Actually, Katie says I'm a better cook, but she's a better baker. I'll grab all of the, the ingredients that, or all of the uh, the spices I like, and I'm just like bam, 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 bam. Like kids are just like running in. Dad, are you shooting some? No, just I'm just making something right. Like it's great. I'm excited. Like I, I'm definitely a person who does not follow the recipe. Um, well, following a recipe is is good for cooking and baking. But not following a recipe is, is okay for cooking. There's only so many ways you can mess up chicken, right? Like, like there's only so many ways you can, you can like saute an onion or saute mushrooms or something like that. So, so it's really not hard to, to, to not follow a recipe. It's kind of, you can do that. You can not follow a recipe for cooking, but baking's a whole other story. You know, my wife recently fell in love with this um, homemade pancake. She makes them from scratch, like not scratch where she's like, pulling wheat, like wheat and making flour, but uh, from scratch where she goes and buys flour, like she, she don't, we don't have box pancakes in this house, right? Like in our home, we got real, like my wife like gets flour, she gets all the ingredients for it and she makes some killer pancakes. Um, if you invite someone to, to church on Easter, I'll give you one, right? Uh, uh, but they're really good. Well, one day my wife was like, hey, can, could you do me a favor? Can you, can you wake up with the kids and, and make pancakes? And I'm like, Katie, we don't have any bisquick. She's like, I know but I got a recipe, right? And I'm like, Katie, I don't follow recipes. She's like, just, just follow the recipe, right? Like, you, you, you gotta be a moron to mess this up. And I'm like, girl... You, you doubt my abilities, right? Like, I, so, so she's like, she's like go, go ahead and go ahead and make these pancakes. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to be a good dad in the morning. I get the kids. I sit them down. I'm like, guys, I'm making pancakes. It's going to be great. And I, and I start following the recipe, two tablespoons of this. And I'm just like, after a while, I'm just looking at the ingredients. OK, I need some of this. I need some of this, some of that. And I'm just mixing it together. I throw it on the, on the skillet. And I'm, I'm flipping these pancakes. And I, I get underneath one. And I flip it up. And it lands. And it's like a, a, a deep thud. Okay, whatever. And I just keep making these pancakes and serve them to the kids. And like Desi's got, a, at this point, he's got like two teeth. And uh, by the time he was finished eating pancakes, he had no teeth. Um, I think to this day, th- these pancakes were horrible. They were really hard. To this day, um, I, my kids, they're, they're in their toy box. They use them as Frisbees in the house. Like, like I, I, when you don't follow recipes, especially for baking, when you don't follow a recipe, bad things happen, Right? When we follow a recipe, when we look at the ingredients and we follow a recipe, good things happen. We, we receive the, res, the most favorable results, especially if it's a good recipe. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that there is a recipe that God gives us in Scripture, a recipe for eternal life, a recipe for what we can call salvation. And if we follow the recipe that God has given us, we can trust and believe that it will produce the most favorable results. However, If we try to alter the recipe in any way, because God is a master chef when it comes to cooking up salvation. When we try to find a recipe or or try to blur the lines or kind of mix ingredients or try to say, you know what? I I like this a little bit more. We we do something to, to completely alter the results. God gives us the recipe. Now, some would be offended by that, Remark and be like, man, because we live in a society where where it's easy to believe that all roads lead to heaven, right? You just you just believe in that gospel according to Oprah, and you're just like all roads lead to heaven, and and you'll and you'll be in heaven, and you'll be in heaven, and you, like everybody's going to heaven, right? Like, uh, but 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 God, if he, if He is Creator, and if He's given us His Word, and in His Word it specifically lays out the one and only recipe, because He's Creator, He's God. I mean, he, he if anybody can give us the the the, the recipe, it should be the chef. He's given us the recipe for, for all, eternal life, and, and yet sometimes we, we twist and we're like, no, 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 it's not gonna produce a favorable result, but God gives us a recipe for eternal life in Luke chapter 23. In Luke chapter 23, we are spending some time looking at the words on the cross. If you were to look in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would see that there are seven statements Jesus says from the cross And it's significantly recorded for the purpose of us seeing that Jesus never once deviated from the mission God had given him. He was always on point. Jesus was always on mission. He he, he never skipped a beat. There was not one point where Jesus was sidetracked from the mission God had given him. And and we, we declared last week that that mission is summarized in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, where Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. Like, like there is, there is no mission. I, I didn't come to, to give everybody Christmas presents. Like, like I, 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 I didn't come to, to put a Bentley in your car. Like, the, those, could, those things could happen, and we could celebrate. But the reason why I came, that the only reason why I am here is to seek and to save that which is lost. And I've got good news for you. If you are breathing oxygen right now, you were born into a world that only was going to bring you into a place of understanding that you are lost, that you are in need of a Savior that you need someone to lean on, and that's Jesus. So he came to seek and to save you, friends. Me, all of us, his hope and prayer and his greatest desire is that we would all come to know him. So he came to seek and to save us. And from day one to the very last moments on the cross, he was focused on his mission. And that's evidenced by the words that he was specifically saying. You see, the reason why we're spending time looking at the cross is because Easter's coming. Right and how many of you love Easter? You put on that sundress, that flower dress, and and you make sure your husband puts on that pastel shirt and that tie that he only wears once a year. Like it's the one time that I put on a suit coat. Like like East. Actually, I wore a couple. That was Vision Sunday. Maybe that'll change. But where am I going? Easter. We we love Easter. We love we love how vibrant Easter is. But but can I just say this? Easter becomes much more vibrant when we hold it up against the old rugged cross. When we when we allow Easter. To not just be a standalone, but realize that, that the, the glory, the, the celebration, the jubilee of Easter is only a reality when we look at the grim, bleak disposition of the cross. When we see how, 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 how tragic and devastating the cross was, it makes Easter that much greater. We celebrate the gift of eternal life when we realize the cost that Jesus paid. Easter is incredible, but we we are looking at the cross, and as Jesus hung on the cross, the world witnessed a Savior who understood his mission and carried out perfectly to the bitter end. He was up there for six hours, friends. From 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., he was upon the cross. Six hours. And he wouldn't allow himself in those six hours to be put out of his misery. He wouldn't allow any temporary comfort or relief Because the joy of obeying his father and the prize of reconciling his children to himself was worth every second of the anguish, every moment of the separation. It was worth the backwash of our sin and death. So let's read Luke 23. Luke 23, two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals. One on his right and the other on his left. Now really quickly, I, you're going to notice that this entire passage I'm, I'm going to bring up some Old Testament scriptures that are being accomplished through Jesus. Why? Because I, I see this argument in the church constantly where, where some of us hold on to the, the wrong assertion or the, the wrong assertion that, that we don't believe in the Old Testament. like the Old Testament is just it's just the, the cranky God in the New Testament is grace. And, and therefore, we, we only read the New Testament. Matthew to Revelation is for us, but uh, Genesis Malachi, through Malachi, nah, that's not for me. Like, that, First of all, it's a scary God. It's yeah, We're under grace now. Can I, can I just say this? From Genesis to Malachi, the entire Old Testament, it is pointing to Jesus. Amen. And that... Every account that we see of Jesus on the cross and every single time he was walking through his ministry, he was fulfilling prophecies that came 751,000 years before he even came onto the earth. It's all about Jesus. From day one, God has been on his redemptive plan of restoring humanity to himself. And it's always through and it's always about Jesus. So we're going to read things and I'm going to pause them and say, hey, I want you to notice this. I want you to see this because I'm trying to open up our eyes and, and have us realize that the Old Testament is for us because it's talking about Jesus. So uh, in, in Isaiah 53 verse 12, I, we don't have it on the screen, but it specifically says that, that he would be counted among the transgressors. He would be counted among the sinners or counted among the rebels. And Jesus was that. Literally on the cross, on his right Look, I mean, look at that last statement. Two other men, both criminals, skip down to that last line. One on his right, the other on his left. What does that say Jesus was? Let's, let's try to use logic. If there, a, if there is a criminal on his right and a criminal on his left, where's Jesus? In the middle. He's among the transgressors. Now, Isaiah 53, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek statement because it's physically, literally him among the, the thieves. He's literally in the middle of the transgressors. But when you look at Jesus's ministry, we cannot find a time where he did not find himself among sinners. Did you know this? Jesus did not try to avoid dirty people. Jesus did not try to avoid sinners. He ran towards them. And at MWC, we don't avoid people because they don't talk like us or don't look like us or they don't believe in. We run towards them because that same God ran at us and ran towards us. And he continues to this day to run towards us. But every single moment of his ministry, Jesus was among the sinners. So much so that the religious elite would say, man. If he was really the Messiah, he would know that an adulterous woman is, 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 is washing his feet. Or if he was really the Messiah, he wouldn't be hanging out with, with, with that tax collector, that murderer, that swindler. He, would, he wouldn't be with these people. And Jesus' response to them was this. Man, you don't understand, guys, to the religious elite. It's not the, 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 the whole who need a doctor, it's the sick. And what Jesus was trying to get them to understand in that statement was, you're sick too. Even though you are following your empty religious traditions, you need me just as much as that person who's been ostracized from the church. Jesus came to heal us all. They said that Jesus was counted among the thieves. And he was counted among the rebels. He was counted among the transgressors and the religious elite tried to oppose him for that. But I love that our Jesus was one who ran towards that. Can I, can I also say something with that same statement? Jesus, although was counted among the sinners, was hanging out with the riffraff of society, religious society, did not condone, necessarily condone, their lifestyle. You can put your stamp of approval on a person and not put your stamp of approval on their lifestyle. As Christians, when we love on sinners, that doesn't necessarily mean we are also condoning the lifestyle. So if you're someone who's like, I I just can't hang out with that person because of the way they live, you can and you could and you can love them in the process without necessarily putting that stamp of approval. And that's what God calls us to. So, so let, me, let me just be honest, or let me, let me just be clear. When I'm saying stamp of approval, I'm saying you're condoning their lifestyle, but you can also condone just the person and say, I validate you as a human. Like, you were created in the image of God. You've got a call, you've got a purpose. Like, like, you're beautiful. You were created by a beautiful God. Therefore, ergo, you're beautiful and, and I love you, right? I mean, that, that, that's the way I feel like we get saved. That's, that's the way I, I, I came to know Jesus when there was Christians, when there was a church that loved me long before I was lovable. They saw past where I currently was and, and, and just saw that this kid has a purpose. I remember the first day I went to church uh, I was playing, I, I, I play guitar, and I was really getting into guitar at that point, and uh, I, I came on the stage after service, and I went up to the worship pastor, and I'm, I'm, I'm just quoting myself, so I'm not saying this from the pulpit, uh, I'm not even going to say it, I said a bad word from the pulpit uh, to this worship leader, I'm like, man, that was beep and great, <laughs> and he's like, hey, Steve, yeah, I see you're going to youth, group. that's awesome, man, he gave me a hug, he's like, you, you should, you should uh, keep practicing, you can play with us someday, didn't like say oh my goodness my ears are bleeding get off of here like no he he, he loved me through the process and man he didn't put a stamp of approval on the things that i was saying and he did once he built a relationship he was calling me out on things and things that i got I had to grow in but he loved me first and jesus was doing this here he was counted among the sinners verse 34 jesus said father listen to this we're just going verse by verse. Verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Here we see another Old Testament prophecy fulfilled. In Psalm 22, verse 18, 1,000 years before Christ was born, look at what David says. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. 1,000 years before Christ was born, Psalm 22, verse 18, is already prophesying about what Jesus would accomplish. Continuing in our chapter, verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar. Remember that, wine vinegar, and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Isaiah 53, 12 also tells us that people were hurling insults. In Psalm 22, verse 7, look what it says here, actually. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Psalm 69, verse 21, look what it says about those verses we just read. Again, this is prophecy. Psalm 69, verse 21 says this. They put gall in my food and give me vinegar for my thirst they're prophesying about jesus david is uh, proclaiming that the things that christ would accomplish this is all pointing to the fact that christ came to save us the priests were saying he saved others we've seen him heal people we've seen him open up blind eyes we've seen him raise the dead we've seen him do some incredible signs and wonders He saved others, let him now save himself. But here's something, Jesus understood that the only possible way for him to save the world was for him at that very moment to not save himself. He was on mission. And it also said that they hung a sign, they hung a sign as a way to poke fun of Jesus, as a way to kind of ironically, say that he said he was the king of the Jews, but he truly was the king of the Jews, the king of all the world. Verse 39 in our passage, and this is where we get to our our portion. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Now we hear this again. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him and said, don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, this Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Who are these thieves? Scripture is silent. It doesn't give us a name. We, we don't have names for these guys. There is just... You know, Thief One and Thief Two. If we were if we were writing a play, but church tradition tells us, kind of gives us a name for these guys. Uh, up until like I think at 40 A.D., uh, we see that there is a bishop of Alexandria that assigns names to these people. So this is 40 A.D. This is a couple of years after the death of Christ, uh, less than 10 years, approximately. And, and they begin to ascribe names to these two thieves. One is called Demas, and the other one called, is called Gestas. Now, if you look at the Greek of these two words, Demas means, um, it means sunset, and Gestas means death. And essentially, what, what they're doing is they I don't think those are their literal names. They're just painting a picture saying, um, this guy uh, saw the sunset. He saw paradise with Jesus. And this guy, on his, on his left, um, was, was the one who saw death, Gestas. Now this is all speculative. Like we, I, I wouldn't write a theology book based on this. It's just church tradition. But even when you look at pictures, illustrations of the three on the cross, I want you to notice something. Um, when you see the three, normally you'll see Jesus' head and every single one of those pictures hang to the right. And the reason why they started using that in an iconoclast uh, images of of Jesus in the early church was to signify that Christ was looking and and looking favorably towards the one that repented. And essentially also looking away from the one that never repented. See, there is two thieves. Only one of them repented. Now the passage we just read, if you were to kind of look at it parallel with Matthew and Mark you would notice that in Matthew and Mark's gospel, it says that, that both criminals were hurling insults, and yet Luke only records that one of them were. Now, before I was a Christian, I, was, I knew the Bible. Um, I was born and raised Catholic, and so, so I, I had a... a a understanding of, of the way the church operated. I, I knew the word of God. In fact, I, I would say I knew the word of God better than some Christians that I knew. Um, so I was very, very, I wasn't even just atheist or agnostic. I was like anti-God, anti-church. And, and I would look for ways to pull out scriptural inconsistencies and say, well, because this gospel says this and that one, then obviously there, there's a fault. There, there, there's a lie there. There's deception but in, Matthew, in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, it says that both of them were hurling insults. In Luke, it says there was just one. What does that mean? Does it mean that the Bible is inconsistent and that it's untrustworthy? No. Why? Because when they were writing the gospels, they weren't writing to unbelievers, trying to convince them. They're writing to believers and they're trying to say a specific story. They're trying to tell their account, their, their version of the story, what they saw. It was their testimony, their witness, And for some reason, the the, the person that Luke was interviewing to to extract his gospel gave more dimension to the story, saying one of them eventually repented. I believe this is what happened, that both thieves, the one on the left and the one on the right, were hurling insults at Jesus. They were getting their cue from the religious leaders. I mean, these guys were murderers. They were vile individuals. They were hurling insults at Jesus But after being on the cross for about six hours, at one point, the other thief, the one on the right, we would imagine, starts realizing that Jesus isn't defending himself. In fact, not only is Jesus not defending himself, but he's praying for the forgiveness of everyone else. They see the innocence of Jesus, that not at one point did Jesus retort or rebuke, that he, nev- he never came to his own defense. He sat there and took the hurled insults at him and instead spoke peace, love, mercy, grace, forgiveness. I believe something happened to this man's heart. By Jesus's silence, And his refusal to return insult for insult, it softened this man's heart. And he said, surely he is the son of God. No man can sit there and take this abuse. You got to remember, there was not one substantial piece of evidence that put Christ on the cross. In the Romans, although we, we look at the way that they crucified Jesus and we assume that they were, they were just a, an outlandish, barbaric society, they were not. They were a people of law and order. The way that they presented judgment was barbaric, but, but they were law and order. And there was no piece of evidence that could put a Jesus on the cross. He willingly went to the cross. He didn't come to his own defense and retort and rebuke. And In fact, even when Pilate came to him and said, are you the son of God? Jesus looked at him and said, it is as you say it, I am the son of God. Never once, And I can see that this guy on the right is just looking at Christ and hurling insult, hurling insult, and eventually he's just like, this guy's not fighting. And, he, and, he, and he's not giving up because he's, he's silent, but he's, he's still bold. He's, he's a fighter. He's on mission. There, there, this has to be the Messiah. And his heart softened. Frank, can I just tell you this? As Christians, one of the ways that we can soften the hearts of the people who are opposed to Jesus is not by the words that we do say, but oftentimes by the things that we don't say. By the actions that we don't do. By the, by the words that don't come out of our mouth. Amen. You see, Jesus understood something and Peter understood something. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he says this, Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with blessing. And what he, what, he, what he means by blessing is not just like, here's a blessing, like he's not saying that, okay? Um, don't pay them back with that kind of a blessing, a five-finger blessing. He's essentially saying, when, when people are, are, are presenting evil on your doorstep, don't, don't repay that. Or when they're hurling insults, right? Some of you are like, I'm not gonna slap that person, but I'm gonna talk about them, right? Like, like listen, he's saying, don't, don't, don't even return insult for insult. Don't retaliate. Instead, pay them back with blessing. This is what God has called you to do, and he will grant his blessing. And Jesus was doing just that, and what was the blessing? This man came to know Jesus. Proverbs 15.1 tells us this. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Friends, I believe that the greatest testimony some of you will ever have is how you stomach the insults that other people give you, how you just bear them, and understand when they're attacking you, when they're attacking your faith, when they're making fun of the things that you stand for and uphold, that they're not attacking you, they're attacking Jesus. And that if you continue to walk through that oppression, that you will be bearing witness and bring a blessing to them, to continue to love them when it makes no sense. Man, I got stories of how when I was a Christian how or when I had when just gotten saved and I was going back to Chicago and I grew up in the South Side, so very violent and gangs and stuff like that and when, when, I, when I became a Christian and I was still talking to these guys and I wasn't talking the same way and I wasn't fighting and, and they were just like, man, he's going through a phase and just saying all these horrible things about me and, and how I just saw passages like this and, and I trusted the Lord and I'm like, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to fight them. I'm not going to return insult for insult. I had friends who would say, man, the way we were talking to you was, was horrible and the way that you stood up for yourself by not standing up for yourself was, was powerful. And to this day, there's some of my friends who are actually saved because I wasn't returning insult for insult. So that is powerful. When we can learn to walk the way jesus did it brought salvation i believe to the thief on the right but the one railed can, railing means to to just throw over and over and over like like just continuing to throw pelt him with with insults and the other guy stopped eventually verse 40 tells us this but the other criminal listen to this the other criminal rebuked him and said don't you fear god Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. And herein lies our our recipe. But this man has done nothing wrong. The next verse, he says this. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. The recipe for eternal life. You ready for this? We see I love how Luke is just perfectly giving us this recipe. You may not see it, but it's in the text. when we extract what's in there, it's, it's hidden in plain sight. The first thing is this. The first ingredient, the first recipe is that we need to have a belief in God. We need to believe in God, believe that there is a creator. Where do we see that from the text? Remember what he said. Don't you fear God? Essentially, what he's, it's a rhetorical question. He's saying, listen, I, I believe God. I believe he exists. I, I believe he's, he's worthy of being feared. I, I believe there is a God. But can, can I just say that? He he didn't just stop short of belief in God. There's a lot of people on this earth that believe in a higher power. But it's not that belief in God that's gonna save you. There is a vast difference between belief in God and faith in God. There is a resolute difference between believing in God and having faith in God. You see, he, he believed that there was a creator, but it didn't just stop short of belief. You see, when you believe something, you are essentially saying, I cognitively understand that there is, there is some, some truth. I, I validate the statement. But when you have faith in God, that's essentially where you're saying, I, I, I put my hope in God. Do, do we understand that? that? That there's a vast difference between belief and faith. I believe some of us in this place believe in God, but may not have our faith in God. And he's saying this. Step one to this recipe of eternal life is have a belief in God. The second one is that you need to admit you are a sinner. Look what, he, look what he's saying. So step one, believe in God. Step two, admit you are a sinner. He said, don't you fear God? I do, I believe in him. And then look what, he, look what else he says. He says this, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. We deserve to be up here. We committed an infraction against what was right, and because we did what was wrong, we are now facing the punishment of that. I deserve this, is what that thief said. I'm admitting I'm a sinner. I deserve the punishment that my actions have brought about. He's admitting he's a sinner. Now, I've had multiple conversations with people, people who were... um, maybe agnostic, they didn't believe, maybe they didn't know what, if there's a God or not, and I've had conversations, and I've been able to get them to this place where they, they say, okay, you know what, after a lot of the, the things that you've brought up, the evidence, like, yeah, maybe there is a God. I, I mean, I would even dare say I believe in God, but I've always ha- found it more difficult to get people from not just believing that there's a creator, but admitting that they are a sinner. Because nobody wants to admit that, that they've messed up, and that's because we have taken the word sin and have used it as a, as, a, as a form of judgment. But I believe if we were to allow the word sin to be like the biblical, biblical construct, sin would be defined as an illustration of missing the mark. If we had a bullseye, and at the center of that bullseye was an arrow, and let's say that arrow was Jesus, Jesus. Missing the mark of Christ is sin. Now, are there varying degrees of missing that mark? Sure, some of you aren't even on the target. Like, I get it. Listen, I wasn't on the target either. And Some of you are probably good people. Like, like when we define good, like, like, you're probably pretty close to that target, but, but did, you, did you hit that mark? We missed it. We all missed it. In fact, Romans would tell us this. Romans says, For all have sinned. Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Everyone has sinned. Some greater than others when we compare each other. But we've all sinned. And because of that, we've missed the mark and we've fallen short. We were just shy right of God's glorious standard. But nonetheless, we've still sinned. And what is the standard for eternal life? it's perfection you need to hit the mark but you missed it can I say if we just stopped there with our recipe we would have a botched me- salvation if we believed in God and admitted we were sinners there would not be enough there's no hope in that great you believe in God even the demons believe that in Shudder James tells us and you admitted you're a sinner great there's no hope But here's the thing that this thief understood. He looked to Jesus and said this, for we are getting what we deserve. Remember, that's him admitting he's a sinner. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Essentially, he was saying Jesus was perfect. He did nothing wrong. I believe in who he says he is. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said those sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man Jesus was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. He continues on. He says, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with the patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that up to us. He did not intend to. The thief understood that Jesus was who he said he was. He believed in God, he admitted he was a sinner, and now he's taking that third ingredient and saying, Jesus, you are who you say you are. You're the healer of the world. You died for our sins. And lastly, he asks Jesus for eternal life. He stated three facts and now he's stating a fourth. It's, it's a request. He's asking for grace. Friends, can I say that Christ gives us a recipe for salvation? To believe that there is a God. To admit our shortcoming, our sin. To trust Jesus is who he says he is. The healer, the savior. The only one that can bring us to that perfect mark. And he does it so beautifully. But then we just have to open up our minds, open up our hearts and ask. He turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, can you remember me when you come into your kingdom? I mean, look at the significance of that statement. Jesus, I don't even need a seat right next to you. I don't even need a seat at the table. I don't even need to be inside the house. God, can you just remember me? when you go into your kingdom. I mean, just look at the, the humility of the guy. He's on the cross. He's literally struggling for error. He's moments away from his, de- he's on his deathbed. He's moments away from death, and at that moment, he's like, God, I, I know I've, I've done all these horrible, uh, atrocious actions. I, I know I was uh, a highway robber. I know I've murdered people. I know I deserve this, but I, I believe in God. I fear him. And, 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 I, and I know I'm a sinner. I know I've messed up. And, and I believe at this point, I've seen the testimony of who you are. and I believe you. Will you remember me when you go into your kingdom? And Jesus doesn't say this. He doesn't say, you know what? It's too late. You should have talked to me years ago. Now it's too late. What, is, what does Jesus say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say hold on give me a minute let me get off this cross you got to get baptized make sure you pay back tithes because it's been a while and uh no he says there is nothing you can do other than those four things to believe in god admit you're a sinner to to believe and trust in my testimony and to just open up your mouth and ask and jesus remembered him you better believe that that day when that man on the thief that adulterous fornicating murderer who who robbed people at not gunpoint spear point was in paradise when he breathed his last to be absent from the bodies to be present with the lord i don't believe there's a holding tank he didn't say hey why don't you go to purgatory for a while i'll meet you there in a couple days i'm gonna spank you and you can get no none of that today you will be with me in paradise friends this is good news This is good news. If you feel like that thief, and can I just say this, like like you don't have to raise your hand, but has anybody murdered somebody today? Is it it like, listen, if, if that thief was given that proclamation, who was not even on the target, why then do we believe we gotta take time and let me just, no. Believe in God. Admit you're a sinner. We've all missed the mark. Trust in Jesus and ask him. He's faithful to forgive. Let us all bow our heads and close our eyes in our, as we close this evening, this morning. God, thank you so much for your testimony, for this, that you want to see us face to face. Lord, we know that you don't want any of us to not see you in paradise which simply just translates to heaven you want to see us all in heaven I believe the Lord would say to us as we are in this place of prayer that every single one of us are one of these two criminals on the cross We're either the guy that is continuously hurling insults and you may say Pastor Steve I'm not I don't talk bad about any religion but listen when you deny that Jesus is who he says he is you are insulting God and I'm not trying to make you feel horrible but I'm just saying we've all done this we're all one of two either we're hurling insults at Christ or at this moment we can be the other thief who on his last moment. And please, friend, don't wait for your last moment because you don't know when that's going to be. Don't wait for your last moment. But who was there on the cross, he confessed his belief in God. He admitted he was a sinner. He, He trusted in who Jesus said he was. And then lastly, he asked him for eternal life. If you're in this place and you would say, you know what, Pastor, I understand that I've, I've hurled insults at God by my actions. I, I've, I've been hurling cosmic insults. I know I'm, I'm separated from God, but at this point, I, I want to be just like that other thief and make that declaration. I want to turn away from myself and turn towards Jesus because I believe that when I turn towards him, his face is turning towards me. He's not going to keep me at an arm's length. He is going to throw his arms around me. If, if you want to experience that newness, that, that life, that love of Christ, will you just lift up your hand so I know who to pray for? Awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Father, thank you so much for the individual that, that said, that's me. God, we know that the angels in heaven Rejoice when we turn towards you. So, Father, we rejoice at this moment knowing that, that there is new life happening here, that people are coming towards you, that you are not keeping them at arm's length because we are stepping away, but you are running towards us, throwing your arms around us. Lord, may you be with us. May you bless us because we love you. And we are your children. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.